Margie Palmieri is the Deputy Chief Digital Artificial Intelligence Officer at the DOD, a position she assumed after a number of years working across the Navy. Um, we're going to talk about how the Defense Department looks at AI innovation and diffusion. Thanks so much to the Hudson Institute and Andrew Marshall Foundation for bringing you this episode. First off, why did the DOD need a new organization? DOD has been on a digital transformation journey for uh, almost 10 years now. Um, in the early days, I, I was in the Navy before this, uh, 2012, there was something called the CNO's Rapid Innovation Cell, or CRIC. And it really was a reflection of the time that the department uh, had these innovation cells all over where um, really uh, innovative, bright, often junior people were going after some of the hardest you know, war fighting and, and technical challenges we had. Um, and they just recognized that there was a new way to do business and that the department had to go after it. And so since that time, as more and more of these cells have grown and been more institutionalized, all the way up through the CDAOs, we call them predecessor organizations. So we were formed out of um, four and a half or so um, organizations that existed for a few years before uh, we were here. Um, and they've all laid the groundwork for DOD's transformation by doing something that is an industry best practice, which is um, start some pilot projects, go out and find some customers, um, see what works, see what doesn't work. Everybody's culture is different. Um, and then you reach a point where you say, okay, we've, we understand how this works. How do we scale? And the CDAO is the department's answer to how do we really scale this approach to, to digitization, to innovation, and to agility that the department needs going forward. So um, as a sort of interloper in the DOD acquisition space, I feel like there's a, like a philosophical divide of sorts between the folks who think pilot programs are good and sort of buy into the narrative that you just uh, laid out of this being a kind of best practice and others who see, um, you know, spinning up different uh, organizations across branches and within the, uh, uh, the Defense Department as kind of like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, like filling filling potholes and not really getting at the uh, the main challenges, which are in the sort of big ticket items and programs of record and like pieces of uh, infrastructure that uh, sort of pilot projects are not going to change. So, what is your sort of take on uh, you know that debate? Um, so, so, so we are friends of everyone on this debate. Um, you need both, and so there's there's kind of two key ingredients for digital transformation. The first one is that. You use new tech and you evolve your processes to really take advantage of that technology and produce a, a better or a different value uh, for the organization. The second piece that makes a digital transformation successful is that the organization is fundamentally changed so that it is more agile to respond to continued changes in technology and the environment going forward. And as we think about what scale means for DOD, um, we really want to see innovation decentralized across the department. We do not expect that anything that we can do from a centralized manner is going to produce all of the right answers for the next crisis or the next conflict. And so we have to bring that, that accessibility of data, interoperability of data, new AI algorithms and analytic tools, and bring them down to people who are solving the problem. They are the experts. They're going to know um, the most compelling answers going forward, and, and they have to have the tools and the access to the information necessary to be able to jump in. Um, we actually just released a new uh, digital AI, uh, or I'm sorry, data AI, um, data analytics and AI adoption strategy in the Department of Defense. And its whole purpose is around this idea that we have to create the organization change necessary to create this agility 
Um, we know that centralized uh, planning and, and master plans are not going to, you know, drive the department to where we need to be. And, it, and it's really the the culture that needs to to change. Now, you can do that through pilot projects, without a doubt. But we also see that there's some institutional barriers to really help those uh, teams that are doing those pilot projects be able to bring it to more more and more users across DOD. And that's where CDO is really focused, whether it's on policy, on talent, uh, on acquisition, um, or on the, the we call it the scaffolding or the the technology that really enables other people to do that development. Um, we're, we're looking at how do we enable the rest of the department to really um, move forward in this area quickly. Can you like stack rank um, uh, talent acquisition scaffolding like the five different things that you think need to be changed in order to deliver these solutions at scale? It's funny you should ask. We have uh, defined a hierarchy of needs. Um, so the hierarchy of needs is is pretty simple. Um, at the base are the, we call them the foundational enablers. This is going to be things like um, having the right, having the right talent, the right processes and, and acquisition and, and uh, institutional pieces that are kind of enablers of this conversation. The next step that, that really is the anchor of the pyramid is data quality. And if we um, do anything, we spend a large majority of our time focused on data quality. The next two steps of the pyramid, as you could guess, are analytics and then AI at the top. Um, and the reason we spend a lot of time on data quality is because if you put bad data into any analytic or AI algorithm, you're going to get bad information out. And so the the data quality piece is really important to us. And, and we think about it really, uh, we have a wonderful acronym in DOD, of course, called VALTUS, uh, Visible, Accessible, Understandable, Linked, uh, Trustworthy, Interoperable, and Secure. But really, if you think about it, can you access the information you need? And is it really interoperable? So are you able to move it around the force in the way that everybody really understands what they're looking at? Um, so that, that's our that's our number one challenge. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how to improve that. And we think about, um, you know, 20% of our data can unlock about 80% of our use cases. Everyone's really looking at the same types of information. And so our job is to really help pull that together um, and make it accessible and interoperable across the force. All right. So let's stay on the data quality stuff. Um, what it like describe the nature of the headache? Yeah, uh, the department has, I think, something like 4000 different databases um, all across the services, the agencies, the combatant commands, the um, OSD staff. Um, e every database uh, has different information inside of it, and it is organized in its unique way, I'll say unique way. Um, being able to uh, reach into those databases, pull the information you need, um, protect privacy and you know all the, the civil liberties pieces that are necessary with some of the, the database uh, information on like our people, for example, um, and then start to integrate it with, not, with, with the data from different functional areas. Uh, we do that through an enterprise platform that uh, we run called Advana. Um, and making sure that you can link the data scientists up with the mission experts so that we really understand what is what is in this database, what is it telling us, and how how good is the quality of the data. Um, I'll tell a little bit of a story here. Uh, when I was in the Navy, we started looking at how to improve Super Hornet readiness. This was, Navy had bought, um, had doubled its number of Super Hornet aircraft over about 10 years, but the mission capable rate of those aircraft was the same. And we thought the radars had a lot to do with it. And so we started pulling data on the radars, and we realized that the serial numbers were just not tracked very effectively. Um, you had to hand put it into a system. 
there was a um, somebody on the other end that you know was kind of frustrated by this, and so they would write, "I love mom, don't ask me." Zero, zero, zero. And it really limited our ability to track the quality of those parts across the system. And so whether it's down at the tactical level or all the way up into the aggregation level, making sure that we understand the quality of the data and how to how to bring it into our analysis and our decision making is is really, really key. So what do you think is the like ratio between sci-fi stuff and getting people to input data better when they're trying to figure out which radar is on which um, plane. Oh, man, I wish it was more of the sci-fi stuff. I, I really do think... Um, now, I wouldn't say everyone in the department is going off looking at data inputs. Um, there's a lot you can do. Even with that amount of you know bad data that we had in that system, the Navy was able to figure out the contributing factors to Super Hornet readiness and get their readiness from 50% to 80% within like a year. And so... All of that information contributed to the decisions that the Navy had to make at the time. And I think we see that across DOD. Once we make that connection to the, the key data sources, the analytics that flow from that and the ability for decision makers to then start to ask different questions and see different relationships across functional areas, you start to unlock incredible value out of just that step. Um, that's not sci-fi. That's still more just, just really good decision making. Um, but I think as we step into, um, you know, where that goes from here and, and how do we now introduce uh, different types of uh, AI algorithms to help us with those decisions so that it goes beyond analytics to AI, um, we, we, may, we may be able to have a little bit more fun in that realm. But um, I, I still think it's kind of a roll up your sleeves uh, and, and really understand your business. What are the sort of use cases that you're most excited about, as well as the ones where, like, you've done some of the digging and some of the data cleaning only to realize that actually maybe like we're not going to get like a huge um, return on continuing to pursue that. Actually, why don't we start with the second one? Where where have been some sort of dead ends so far? Yeah, you know, data availability is whether is the key marker for whether you have a, uh, you know, an open freeware cul-de-sac. Um, in areas where the data is available, we can make sense of it, we can tag it, we can clean it. Those are where we have incredible opportunities. And um, I'll just talk about the, the warfighting area for, for one uh, second here. Um, we have incredible organizations throughout DOD who collect data. They collect it from experiments, from tests, from um, you know, different uh, things that the services do when, as they build new weapons or as they uh, bring together their forces. And these organizations are, are charged with collecting this data for holding it and for analyzing it. Um, we have been able, I'm probably jumping into your first question, but we have been able to um, really harness that information and uh, bring the data labeling needs of AI algorithms to that um, and start to, to really help operators take a look at, you know, things that normally would take them hours to do. We can speed up with, with simple AI algorithms. Um, the power is when you bring them from one area and then you start to multiply them across the force. And I think we see really, really exciting uh, trends there. On the, on the other area where, you know, you might have this really great idea for how to in incorporate AI and the data's not there, um, you're, you're really back to, back to square one, asking, you know, how do you get those data sets? How do you collect them? And, and how do you bring them together? The other key stopper for implementation of artificial intelligence is how does it really fit in the workflow of the user? 
And so you might have all this data and you might develop an amazing algorithm, but you have to get the user to think about how they would do their workflow, you know, teamed up with an algorithm. Um, and then how do they make decisions differently than in the past? And uh, we've seen a couple examples. We run an experimentation series ourselves where we've introduced new tool, tool excuse me, we've introduced new tools to operators and they haven't felt comfortable with them and they've, they've gone back to the whiteboard. And so it's equally important that you're adopting the tool as it is that the fact that you built it. Um, so on the sort of data availability side, like there's a few wars that are going on right now. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a debate playing around, uh, playing out particularly in places like War on the Rock saying that the U.S. could be learning more from uh Ukraine, in particular, just if there was sort of uh, a, a sort of deeper integration and maybe sort of people, uh, you know, on the ground understanding exactly uh, on a sort of firsthand level how command and control and sort of the integration of all these new uh, technologies is, is is playing out on the battlefield. I care to like, um, I don't know, maybe answer that a little more generally about uh, uh, how uh, lessons from the war in Ukraine is, is changed, uh, changed the way you're operating or not? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd say two things. Um, one is you can see the Ukrainians and the incredible agility that they have in their force and how they are encountering new threats and responding very, very quickly to that. And that is absolutely everything that, that our strategy and our approach inside of CDAO is focused on, which is how do you create the conditions for the department so that when new threats come, things that you did not expect, things that you did not have a full you know, maybe Intel analysis on and years to develop inside of our acquisition process, how do you then turn and respond to them very, very quickly? And we see in, in Ukraine in particular, the fact that rapid response to those new types of tactics, techniques, and procedures or technology is absolutely critical to, to staying ahead. Um, so we're doing a lot inside of CDAO to look at, you know, the agility of our processes, to look at our acquisition strategies, and to think about how do we make government data more accessible to our industry base, which we absolutely know is a uh, key asset for us going forward. Um, if we can expose our government data to industry, they can do much more in a very fast, innovative cycle. And, and we feel really good about um, being able to introduce that agility and responsiveness. On the other side, internal to the Department of Defense, we have done, uh, I think we're, we're up to our 50th or so um, aid package to Ukraine. Uh, since the war started. And all of that is a decision-making process inside of DOD. And we have brought data and analytics to that problem set, taking a look at industrial-based capacity for weapons production, um, how we make decisions around how many weapons we keep ourselves versus give to allies and partners. Um, and uh, that system I talked about before, that Advana platform, is able to allow us to connect these different data sources together, bring them into one place, and then start to write... Um, you know, both historically looking algorithms and predictive algorithms on um, how to inform our weapons aid packages uh, to the Ukrainians. There's a difference between sort of wartime innovation and and, and peacetime innovation. And uh, my my favorite example, which I recently came across, was the Navy in the interwar period did not let the submarines practice at night. Um, because apparently that was too dangerous and scary. And then all of a sudden the Germans start doing it and they still don't practice. And then you have Pearl Harbor 
And at that point, the Navy is like, all right, maybe we should like try to get with the program here. Um, I am sure that uh, a lot of your sort of internal headaches with regards to getting people to give you data and whatever it is you're sort of talking very nicely around um, would go away tomorrow if a sort of serious kinetic event happened involving um, the U.S. How do you think about this uh, wartime versus peacetime innovation uh, dilemma um, as you're thinking about what to spend uh, your organization's energy on? Yeah, absolutely. We think about this a lot. Um, so we have a, a series of experiments. Uh, one of them is called the Global Information Dominance Experimentation Series or GUIDE. Um, and we have learned from other organizations inside of DOD that just have this rapid and continuous experimentation cycle. Um, and we've brought that to how we think about development of capability. So um, I'll step back one second. Um, organizations throughout the Department of Defense do experiments and exercises on a regular basis, both in the services, on the, in the joint community, at the combatant commands. Um, and in a large part, uh, there's a difference between exercises where you train and experiments where you learn. Um, you're, you're constantly learning, obviously, but in the experimentation cycle, it's okay to fail, and it is really good to learn why. Um, and so we've taken that experimentation mindset, and every 90 days this year, we have had a guide experiment. So we're going to have our fourth in a couple of weeks. Uh, we just finished our third uh, one this year a couple of weeks ago, um, and it has created a, a sense of, of crisis because if you're not ready to go with whatever... Uh, technical technological advance you have or um, any kind of hypothesis you have around a workflow change or, or TTP change, um, you're not going to make the experiment. You're going to have to wait another 90 days, which sounds very quick in DOD terms. But, um, you know, there there's a sense of urgency around being able to really bring data and analytics uh, to warfighters and commanders for decision advantage. And so GUIDE creates that sense of urgency. And every, every 90 days, we take another bite at that apple. It is led to incredible innovation this year, um, just insights into how we do business. It has allowed us to um, tackle root causes of problems that would have taken us years, years to figure out if we had gone through a normal kind of um, development cycle where you define the requirements and then put it to industry to build and then put it out into the field and then maybe realize the users weren't happy with it. Yet we get hands-on contact with users every 90 days to see if the solutions that we're putting in place work and if they want to change them or if it's just not for them. Um, it's also allowing us, uh, really, the users to see where the introduction of new technology might really challenge how they've been trained. And um, so we keep we create an environment through Guide that it's safe to try something new and it's safe to, you know, not have it work out. Um, we love when we find things that break because we get the chance to really go after that. And sometimes the things that are broken are not technological at all. Um, we know that for data sharing for our, our close allies and partners, we have to go back and tackle some of our classification guides. That's a that's a policy thing, um, and and we love that uh, in some some geeky way uh, here to to go remove that kind of barrier. So so the answer is we're trying to fake like we have wartime uh, every ninety days. Yeah, I mean, uh, in a in a way, yeah, and and we're doing that in conjunction with the other combatant commands and services in the organization who already have these events planned, and so it's a really great way to create economies of scale because you're saying, hey, you're going to play this anyway. Would you spend some time, a couple hours of your day, um, in in our experiment so that we can really get some feedback and 
and measure what's happening. And it's actually generated a ton of excitement um, and and real new ideas from people out in the field that that want to see um, where we can take it. The, the other thing I'll say is that um, although we are not fighting, um, U.S. forces are not fighting in Ukraine and Israel today, we are doing a lot um, on the supportability side for both of those nations and um, how we make decisions about readiness, our own readiness and, and our industrial base are absolutely um, getting exercised. And so um, the way we bring data and analytics to decisions, like I talked about before, on, on weapons readiness and, and availability and capacity, um, that also exists in how we um, make decisions on our own forces and, and where we want to send them and how we want to train them. And, and so that's actually also giving us um, a really great opportunity to, to improve those decision processes as we go. You know, you got this like ghost fleet book, right? Um, where basically like the, 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 the sort of information lights go off and all of a sudden like, you know, r- really nice like digitization job you guys uh, did there, Margie. Like, wouldn't it be a shame if like you couldn't use the internet for 72 hours or something? Um, is that a contingency that is under sort of your remit? And if so, how are you thinking about that? Any, anything there? The, d- the department looks at this concept of DDIL, you know, dis- deny disconnected intermittent and latent environment. Um, we do not assume that we're going to have perfect communications when we fight. And uh, there are multiple contingency plans around how to get around that. Um, it's absolutely a factor in the calculus and how we def- uh, how we in CAO design our technological solutions and capabilities. Uh, we want to make sure, you know, back to what I said at the beginning about, you know, the decentralization of these technologies. We want to make sure that should a unit find themselves disconnected from uh, the rest of the force, they're still able to use data analytics and AI to support them at a at a local or tactical level. Um, and the way we design our capabilities is to make sure that they can degrade gracefully and that um, even all the way down to the tactical level, units have the ability to, to leverage them. Let's talk about innovation versus diffusion. So, um, you know, a lot of focus, particularly when it comes to AI, is about, you know, who has the leading models and what sort of capability is most um, advanced. But a theme that we've been discussing on China Talk for a while now is the importance of um, diffusion and kind of like getting this stuff into the hands of everyone, which is, uh, you know, it uh, doesn't seem like you're waking up every day, Margie, trying to compete with OpenAI and Anthropic and, you know, builds uh, GPT-5 or what have you. Um, let's start on the innovation side. Like, how does how do sort of breakthroughs in the frontiers of what these technologies are capable of um, impact uh, how you guys think about uh, potentially um, pushing uh, pushing this stuff out to the force. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a, a really great dichotomy. So we look at, um, we, we've looked at both open source and, you know, intelligence community reporting on AI and both on the U.S. side and in across the world. Um, most of the, most of the measures for how we think about AI are on the innovation side. So they're, they're kind of the ingredients of AI innovation. Um, whether it's it's data, talent, uh, algorithm development, you know, amount of compute, um, all those are really good at measuring innovation. They're 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 a good indicator of of how mature an organization is, but it's it's not the ultimate measure. And we've been really thinking inside of DoD around how does innovation turn into operational impact. Um, 
we have measures across those different ingredients as well, um, but it doesn't actually tell us how well we've adopted the technology. And and did we adopt it in a way that really contributes to operational effectiveness? And and those are those those are really key measures for us. And so we're now looking at things like data availability. So you know, can you actually access the data? It's it's great you might have it, but but do the right developers and users have access to it? Um, back to that workflow integration piece. You know, are we really taking advantage of the tools that we're putting in place by introducing new workflows that make us have better, faster decisions? Um, the trustworthiness of the information, and um, you know, a lot of times we can develop a technology, but are there, there's two things kind of around trustworthiness. We like to call it justified confidence, uh, which is a little bit more of a technical term, but it really means you know. How much or how accurate is the AI algorithm at producing the answer that you think is right? And do your users know that level of confidence? And so we do not expect an AI to get 100% accuracy um, in its predictions. Um, and so if it's not 100%, what is it? And we need to be able to characterize that for a user and and they have to know whether they should rely on it a lot, a little, and and really in which context, because all of AI is use case driven. Um, and then the last one is on kind of this warfighting integration question. Have we really incorporated artificial intelligence into the workflows that matter the most to give us advantage in you know competition or crisis uh, or conflict? Um, so it's not just the technology piece there, but we're really looking at how how we use it. Um, back to your diffusion piece, how do we use it and um, is it really actually leading to effectiveness? So when you're sort of like trying to define like operational impact, right? There's like levels of abstraction away from, you know, this helped me blow up X more ships in this war game. Uh, and I think, you know, you can potentially run into sort of like different incentives depending on sort of how far or up or down the like stack or kill chain or what have you, you sort of like set those goals. Um, how do you think about, um, you know, setting your, your, your KPIs for something that is, you know, is operating in such a sort of complex, um, uh, complex environment. Yeah. In, in some cases it's, it's speed. I mean, in a lot of cases it's speed, you know, what, what we do today in certain operations because of the, you know, diversity and sometimes disconnectedness of some of our systems, um, we might have an operator, um, working on their system where, where that's what they use in their functional area, but they've got to communicate to another operator who's working on a different system in a different functional area. And we call it swivel, swivel chair. Um, so you kind of look at your screen and then turn your chair and type into a different system and then turn your chair back and then turn your chair back. And um, and that takes a, up a ton of time and it re, you know increases errors and, and sometimes just digitizing the information from one system to another and making, sh you know, dig um, translating that information, you know, in a, in, by computers as opposed to by humans can increase accuracy, can increase speed, um, and you can start to see better collaboration. And I think that's, um, so speed, accuracy, collaboration is another key, you know, KPI for us. Um, because when we see that people are able to go into the same environment, look at the same information, and start to work together to develop different options, we we always get better options out of that. And so instead of it being kind of this linear process where we're bringing different functional teams together um, more often and uh, in ways that they hadn't before, which means commanders are getting more enriched decisions. If you 
if you have a course of action for how you want to employ U.S. forces, um, normally you would put that course of action together and then the and then turn it over to the logistics team. Now we're bringing the logistics team into that course of action development, and we're able to better express you know impact on the spot. Can you talk about the like challenges and opportunities of joint stuff versus um, branch specific stuff? Like, what do you think should be done um, uh, at the CDAO level versus um, uh, within the individual forces? Um, the department is huge. I three point five million people, uh, hundred and you know plus countries that we're in. You know, not to include the the sites where we deploy uh, operationally. Um, to the extent that we can have organic solutions at the the lowest level, um, the more innovation and impact I think we'll have. When it comes to jointness uh, versus you know maybe service specific efforts. Um, we think it's a it's a yes end. It's the services know their business so well. They know all of the operations that they need to do, and they're actually working really well together to look at how to bring together their different, um, you know, what we call them kill chains in the department, um, but different effects. You know, how do they combine Army and Navy effects or Air Force and Navy effects uh, into one place? Back to this notion of scale, what we what we want to see is not just a point-to-point -point collaboration between the services, but this ability to make data accessible across all the services and the chain of command from, from the service up to the joint task force, up to the combatant commander, up to the you know chairman of the joint chiefs and the secretary of defense. And the tools that we can put in place at CDAO allow that enterprise approach to whether it's, it's data translation um, or data accessibility that... Um, really start to kind of raise all boats. And so instead of depending on who's collaborating with who at any given given time, which which produces incredible results but finite capacity, we can start to uh, put in place those solutions that will say, hey, if you're going to contribute your data into this enterprise architecture, it's going to be made available to everyone. And then, and then the collaborations can happen much more organically. Margie, you've been like very sunny and positive for the past uh, 40 minutes. Um, are we missing something that's grinding your gears? Like uh, if you could snap your fingers and change three things on a sort of, you know, budgetary level, a sort of culture mindset level, like what do you think needs to happen um, uh, uh, to, 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 to help, uh, you know, instantiate all the things you've, we've been talking about? Yeah. Okay. Two things. You know, I have never, so in my career, I have worked these integration problems um, and interoperability problems for, you know, for over a decade. Um, never have I seen before an organization like CDAO, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I decided to, you know, kind of leave the, the awesome work I was doing in the Navy and, and come to OSD, which is traditionally a policy organization. Um, but in CDAO, we have all the levers necessary to impact not just near-term change, but but long-term institutional change. And, and that is really, um, and I'll get to the, the barriers you asked about, um, but that's where really hard spade work has to exist. And so we have um, chief data officer authority over all the data policy in the department. We have acquisition authority to think about new um, ways and, and vehicles to go and access America's amazing industrial base. Um, we have incredible tech talent on our team. I, I, our team is just so amazing. And the way that they work together and come together and solve problems and their motivation to uh, be in the national security space is just off the charts. It is so exciting to be part of this team. And um, we have we have the ability to 
to run enterprise platforms and um, and actually bring capability to, to users in the department. And between all of those different levers, we have the ability to um, not just kind of set the stage and, and show the department kind of a, a path to go down, but to go and remove those fundamental barriers that have been blocking people at lower levels for, for years, um, just because, you know, we don't know who owns the policy for, for data sharing with Five Eyes partners. And, and as it turns out, it's actually a decentralized policy approach, um, which requires a lot of hands-on work. And um, so, so I'm, I'm just really excited and positive because I really do think that the department has created the conditions necessary to, to make substantial change, um, both near-term and long-term. The cool thing about data and, and software is that you know, the, the cycle time for it is, is pretty quick. Okay, so that, that's that's positive. Um, now, now, what could we change? We are finding in the current crises, um, both in Ukraine and Israel, and in our own experimentation through Guide every ninety days, that our budgeting process cannot keep up with the demand and the changing environment. And so, we are seeing this year, for example. Um, I mean, not only are we in a continuing resolution, but but even you know with the um, the full expectation that we had when we budgeted two years ago, um, we we have a, a different set of demand signals right now. And we know that industry is ready to respond and to, to jump on that. Um, but we're limited to, um, you know, what we what we plan for and, you know, absolutely stand by stand by the plan and the right balance across the department. Um, but I, I do think we need to think differently, especially in the software space um, around how we can can better measure uh, both the the cost of um, of software as we change the user base and, and better predict for that, um, and also how we get a better sense of the demand signal going forward. And I think all of that is is coming with experience, and, and we're we're putting that in place as we go. Um, I think the other piece is is acquisition, and on the acquisition side, um, we we definitely see new and emerging needs um, and the need to put things out there quickly. And I think we've got all the right um, policies and and processes in the department to to respond to that. I really wish um, we had you know more reps and sets around you know uh, different acquisition teams that know how to use those and put those in place and and are able to to move that faster. And I know that there are a bunch of initiatives across the department to to look at those kind of um, enabling functions. You know that whether it's on the the uh, HR side or the money side or the the acquisition side. Um, and I think the last piece is talent. Um, right now, we have an incredible amount of technical talent in DoD, but finding it is usually by word of mouth. Um, you know, you run into people because you're working on the same project or you happen to be in the same kind of chat thread. And um, we have functional community manager lead for the digital workforce inside of CDAO as of uh, kind of uh, this February. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is look and look at all the positions across the department, find where that talent exists and and institutionalize it. So be able to create a, a real career path and a network of, of people like this um, so they're able to really see themselves in the department. Right now, it's, it's, it's kind of luck of the draw if you are coming in as a technical person, where you're going to be placed, is the organization going to really understand how to use your talents? Um, and we want to make that much, much smoother going forward. Um, and finally, if I had one more wish list uh, thing, um, we're doing a lot of work to educate kind of, you know, the mission leads. And so the 
the leaders of the department on how to use this talent. Um, I really wish people um, just felt super empowered to be able to to bring this kind of capability into their day-to-day workflows. And um, we want to make sure that they've got the right expertise on, on you know, data 101 and AI 101 and you know, how do you how do you start to think differently about how you do business? It doesn't have to be the way we've done in the past and um, get more leaders excited about um, how to take on some of these challenges in their in their own area. If you just have a really great tech team, it's not going to work. You've got to have a mission lead that's super excited about doing things in a different way and, and rallying their people. So, so Margie, let's stay on that last one for a second. Like, to what extent is this like a, a sort of generational thing you have to kind of wait out, which is something that's happened over a number of times over the course of uh, sort of, uh, you know, like different versions of revolutions in military affairs? Or um, is this something that you can actually talk people into if you, you know, have enough case studies and you run enough 90-day simulations that get people excited? Uh, Maybe it's a little bit of both, but I have been, I've been really impressed by some of our most senior leaders in the department asking for, uh, more data and analytics and, and AI to help them make decisions. Um, once you get to the place where the complexity of the situation is is just so so much broader than just a normal um, you know straightforward decision, you really need data and analytics to help you um, you know make sense of what's happening and, and what the different factors are. And so sometimes I think we see some pretty senior and, and older um, you know to your generation comment, uh, individuals asking for this type of tech, they see the power of it and they, they know how it's been done before and, and they're just looking for something different. Um, but absolutely, I think we have definitely seen uh, kind of pushback when we first come in in an experiment or, or an operation um, with, with certain folks and we say, hey, we, you know, we can make this better and we can help you with, with new tools. And they're like, yeah, we don't really have time for that. Um, but as we start to start to work or they have a colleague that starts to work, they start to see the potential and, and then say, OK, tell me more about that and let's see what we can do over on this side. And we've seen entire communities just rally behind this. And, and I think that's that's the key. You want to um, you want leaders who are going to enable their people and, and get the right folks on board so that all the right you know communities are, are working together on a to solve a given problem. And it really just takes one of those leaders to to light a spark under others and, and you start to see momentum. I want to talk about the sort of like Defense Department business model for AI models. In the satellite world, the DOD and the intelligence community have decided that they want to own things in the sky. Um, to my knowledge, it doesn't seem to be like the Defense Department has decided that it's necessary to sort of like train its own proprietary um, generalized uh, large language model. Um, you know, how do you guys think about what is and isn't appropriate to rely on uh, you know, open source versus, uh, uh, you know, corporate partners versus uh, having to sort of like have your own tentacles on uh, entirely when when thinking about uh, data analytics and artificial intelligence? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, We see incredible benefit and uh, exciting technology and industry. And to the max extent, we want to leverage that. Um, The one probably caveat I'd put on that is that we want to own our data and we want our data and our data products to be accessible to all of our users and not locked up in any given system. And as long as we're able to put data in and get data back out, um, and not just the 
the raw data, but all of the enriched products that ha- that come from those different tools. As long as we're able to to have that happen, we want to fully jump in on on industry. Um, we think that you know when it comes to government bringing our data to the table, whether it's for a, a, a training set or for tweaking models um, or for testing models, um, we think there's there's definitely benefit to that. Um, but all the rest is is over to industry for innovation, and we're excited to partner. Uh, let's talk about large language models for a second. How does a, a GPT-4 type uh, product end up uh, sort of playing into um, your vision of what AI can do for the defense department? Yeah, um, LLMs have been a, a big topic of discussion inside of DoD. We have stood up a task force called Task Force Lima that is uh, designed to experiment with them. And when we when we started Task Force Lima, we knew that there was incredible interest in, in DoD on these models. Um, and since uh, really over the last month or so, we've collected about 180 different use cases from across the department. Um, you know, not not for us to do centrally, but just as a indicator of kind of where people are focused and how they want to use these models. Let, and let's they, stay on that. What's have, like the most surprising yeah. one? Oh, I, that's a great question. I don't know if any of them are surprising. Um, you know, of course, you have like the normal um, back office functions, you know, in HR or, at, or you know, um, admin or budget. Um, and then you have the most, you know, outrageous ones around, you know, course of action development for, you know, deciding what to do in a in a middle of a conflict. And, you know, I think the, the, the movies have helped us with imagination and they've, you know, helped kind of spark what people think that they can do. And then there's the reality and um, what uh, we, we might want to think are, you know, kind of quick wins or things that we can absolutely, you know, deploy them for. Here's what here's what I think is really important and, and something I'm actually very excited about is back to this question of justified confidence and um, how do we know how much we should trust these models? Um, and, it, and it's really key. AI is a use case based technology. And so even in the general purpose, you know, model world, or I should say generative AI world, um, you still want to you know, get high accuracy on your model, which depends on, you know, what kind of data it's trained on and, and what it looks at. Um, and when we look at where we should really or could use these models in the Department of Defense, it really comes down to how much confidence we can have that they're going to predict the right thing. Um, and so what we've done with the hundred use cases is we've looked at them by functional area and we found that, hey, they, they cover just about every functional area in the Department of Defense. Um, and we've broken them up into kind of um, tiers. And so think about it like a maturity model for your, for your you know, back office functions or processes that are going to have a lot of human review. Like I, I want to ask an LLM to write a draft position description to hire someone. Um, you know, really good training data. You're going to go through the whole HR process to hire someone, um, and multiple people are going to get to, to check that. There's going to be an interview process. If the if the LLM you know gives you some sort of hallucination or something wrong in that process, it's going to be caught and it's going to be fixed. And um, you don't ha- need to have a high tolerance um, for uh, that kind of model. So we call it like acceptability criteria. We can have we can have low low confidence because we know it's going to get checked. Um, but if you're up at a higher level and you're starting to get into those decision processes associated with warfighting, you're going to want a very high confidence, or you may really want to question whether or not to use an LLM in the first place. And that that level of 
confidence is going to have to be, you know, 99.9999999. And then you're going to really have to check whether or not you feel comfortable in the workflow. And so we think these, this kind of maturity model um, based off of these different acceptability criteria are, are the way forward with how we make decisions around LLM. So we're going to go experiment with a bunch of these uh, different use cases and, and get um, a better idea of how to define that in more detail. Um, but this is a huge opportunity for collaboration between the government and industry and academia and even our international partners where we can all you know, go out there and learn and test simultaneously and then come back together and, and have a better understanding of, of how to do this responsibly. I want to bring that back to the concept you raised early in this discussion around decision advantage. And I think there is a narrative out there that like there is a sort of intrinsic um, like competitive dynamic that would want you that would sort of lead one to putting, uh, you know, making more and more of this sort of like OODA loop decision framework, what have you at the, you know, tactical, operational and strategic level um, sort of autonomized. Because if you're uh, adversary is doing that um, and is just able to move faster because of that, then, you know, by dint of you keeping a human in the loop um, and, you know, being less confident at 95% or 90% or what have you, you are actually kind of losing your, um, you know, overall power and ability to dictate uh, kinetic events or what have you. Uh, thoughts on, um, you know, to what extent you know, are worried about that uh, leading the world into a dangerous place? Yeah. I mean, inside the U.S., our doctrine is very clear. Uh, we have the 3000.09 autonomous weapons uh, instruction. Um, we always have a human responsible for any action that takes place in the department, even one uh, conducted by a, a machine, an autonomous system, or an AI algorithm. And um, in that in that way, this is why this, con- this, this concept of justified confidence is really critical. Because you have to measure, you have to measure the algorithm itself, and a lot of people think you're done at that point. But it's actually that, that's just the first step. The next step is that you have to make sure the operator, the person in charge of of that decision, to you know employ employ fires or whatever the the uh, effect might be. That person has to be crystal clear on the information that they are relying on, whether it comes from a normal system, whether it comes from an AI algorithm, um, and and that factors into their calculus. So there's always a responsible human, um, and they are the ones accepting the risk. And I think that's really key because as we think about AI and incorporating it into the workflow, that that mission leader, that responsible human, is the one that has to say go or no go. And they have to make sure that their team is trained on how to use the information that's coming in, whether it's you know human generated, AI generated, or you know another kind of machine uh, type of capability. So unfortunately, you know, while while the while the movies and the you know um, the other media out there are great for inspiration, it's it's hard work inside here to make sure that it it works and it it works well and um, keeps our nation safe and our our warfighters safe. Yeah, and I think that's sort of my big takeaway from this conversation is like like every. I, Every sentence that you've said over the course of this conversation, I can just imagine like the amount of pain that it takes to sort of deliver that thing into existence. And you've given us, you know, you've been very generous with everyone you've worked with over the course of this hour in uh, and speaking really positively about uh, the process and 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 um, uh, progress you guys have made. But it's 
it's almost unfathomable how difficult it must be to sort of push like a IT transformation um, with this sort of like level of potential upside, but also with this sort of um, uh, bureaucratic incrustation um, that you must have uh, be having to 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 fight through in order to um, uh, uh, you know to 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 turn that ship. Yeah, I mean, w- without a doubt, we have so much to do. With so much to do going forward, I don't think we'll ever be done. Um, I think this is one of the the steps on our way to you know improving the department uh, over the course of the next you know five ten plus years who knows where technology is going to go in the future I, I will say I am super encouraged and excited um, we attract amazing talent into the Department of Defense for this mission we have a Defense Digital Service uh, DDS that brings people in from industry for you know six months a year up to two years. Um, and we have just incredible enthusiasm from that group of people that said, hey, we wanted to come and give back to our nation. And um, your problems are really hard. And we're like, yes, our problems, our problems can be hard. They're exciting. You're not, you know, just making, you know, kind of cat memes or whatever it is out on the out on the Internet. You're going to um, really come in and make an impact on on the nation and on our warfighters when you come into our our organization and, and come into the Department of Defense anywhere and work on on technology. I also am super excited because, like I said before, the organizations before us laid an incredible foundation and really did a lot of that hard work. Um, They have set it up so that uh, we are we are eager for culture change, I think, inside of DOD. And um, we're really looking for the mechanisms to to make that happen. And and everyone's just working so well together to 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 advance that. And so um, you know, even though there's there's a lot of those sticky points, um, there's incredible camaraderie and, and group of you know individuals and and teams uh, that are just working together to make a difference, which is which is actually just really exciting. Probably why I'm so optimistic. Marge, you got a song to take us out on? Oh man, uh, how about uh, can I think for a second? Yeah, of course. Does it have to be a happy song? No. <laughs> So like I'm I'm trying to decide between like my my daughter's uh favorite songs. So my my daughter's a huge uh King Julian fan and um and Monster High fan. And I don't think that you want to run Iron Booty. Um it's probably not appropriate. <laughs> uh I actually think it's perfect. Uh Margie, thank you so much for being a part of China Talk. All right, thanks thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Communication coming in Too much that I can't communicate with all of them I do wish I had scientists or engineer friends Let's go Get out of here, Petro is cheaper than it's ever been And then Who's to say when all will end? All I know is when the portrait painted, better have your portion of the rent. A dollar more and you will get upgraded when you think you've made it, you are then. Just tolerated, overrated, hope I'm 80 when I get my second win. Small potatoes, all I ate before potato chips would cut my corner lips. Operator, operator, I would pray that you connect me to a sip. Of sangria, Zambia, camera, camera, hand me a handful of hips. 
A stamina stampede of happily happenings dabbling into a bliff. The neon, beyond the ambience, be honest, you promise that you will live. Do summers ever forget? Put your muscle like a kid. Cucumber will make a trip. Do jump on it, hit a split. Hookers don't really do shit. Do get lantern in it, bitch. Rebelling is like an itch. Oh. I'ma live, I'ma live forever. Yeah, that was shaped like a teardrop. I got the streets in the head like fly, just like a skydiver. Spear, I can get manslaughter. Suicide door on a Range Rover. Depending on the time I was laying up, I could have been wearing an animal. Pull up and get at your shit and remember. When it gets odd, think it's a gamble. Trying to avoid cameras, break my heart. Trying to avoid cameras. I keep shit loaded like a band Learn how to turn a trap house to a mansion. Watch me watch the world take my pain and balance it. It's better to be an outcast in a world of envious. White socks, feel a flip flop. She never ventured till the finish. Music computers and robbers and looters and looters with shooters and shooters with rogers and shooters with rogers CDs with my tutors and my tutors taught me a terrible miracle. You can lie, cheaters still killing America. Be celebrated like Captain America. Fuck it, I'm with it, let's get it. This nigga in Nickers and Bentley, Pelley and Lennox. Man, I'm a villain with chilling, so I'm never chilling. I gotta make millions. I used to be dope with the dealing, but that got a ceiling, and we know the usual dealing. Niggas get rich and go bitching, go fed and go stitching, and fuck up their family and friends. Me, I go to Germany, earn me a couple of million, return with a couple of pins. I'll go to Brazil and just kicking and chill till I'm over the hill and still fucking on. The world got no mercy, so I had to show him like Percy with me, it just can't be no limit. A hundred percentage authentic, see, I got no gimmick, so I ain't protecting no image. My style original, pivotal, is going digital, niggas, you like as a mimic. I'm a menace that's moving on vengeance, I promise my opt and my anger is endless. It ain't enough that I took out my op in this block, we burnt down this whole fucking village. Did it with smile, out of grimace, it was my pleasure to see that this fuck nigga finished. If you get offended, then fuck it, my nigga, I'm with it, I'm hitting, let's get this shit in. Back of the club, the immaculate thug, with bottles above and some masses to rub. Look at me, bitch, look at me, look at me, bitch. Look at the crooked me, bitch. Look at me, hit you with crookedy. Now I got you walking crookedly. They should be booking me. They should be booking me. Know that they won't. I'm Thelonious Monk in the dome. Kicking that jazz, collecting my bag. I'm talking Millie, ain't talking vanilla. Had to get that hanging nigga from Nimmy. I do not move like a regular Joe. I'm not moved by no regular hoe. I do not wish for no regular life. I did not marry a regular wife. You think that I'm losing, you smoking a pipe. Go make love to an angel. Eat. 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 Eat